Welcome to the Iowa Idea Podcast. Join host Matt Arnold for in-depth conversations with artists, designers, entrepreneurs, and civic leaders as he explores how they approach their craft and represent a modern version of the Iowa Idea. This podcast tells the stories of Iowa natives, transplants, and friends who demonstrate the Iowa idea in the 21st century. Creativity is the synthesis of diverse elements. In this episode of the Iowa Idea podcast, I sit down with Andy Stoll. Andy is a serial social entrepreneur and producer, has co-founded six entrepreneurial-focused organizations, and currently serves as a senior program officer in entrepreneurship at the Kauffman Foundation. His career is focused on building pioneering programs, communities, classes, and events to help entrepreneurs and creatives turn their ideas into reality. Andy's work has been featured in the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, and his portfolio of projects include collaborations with AOL founder Steve Case, Microsoft founder Paul Allen, and Zappos CEO Tony Shea. We dig deep into creativity, networks, collaboration, and what it means to innovate and be an entrepreneur in the connected age. Through Andy's work in building creative and entrepreneurial ecosystems, he's noticed four patterns of the connected age. The democratization of creativity, that the individual has been globalized, networks are replacing hierarchies, and geography does not have a monopoly on good ideas. It was an honor having Andy join me on the show. I really appreciated Andy's stories and perspectives. I thank him for sharing his time and insights, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Andy, it's an absolute pleasure to have you here on the Iowa Idea Podcast. Thanks so much for taking the time to join me. If you don't mind, for our listeners, uh, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, well, uh, my name is Andy Stoll. I'm a social entrepreneur, and I also currently work at uh, Kauffman Foundation, which is one of the larger foundations in the world that works on entrepreneurship. And I herald from uh, the Midwest. I originally was born in Omaha. I spent um, probably somewhere between 14 years over a couple stints in Iowa. So I always refer to Iowa as my spiritual home. Uh, so many great things have happened because of things I've done in Iowa or people I met. Um, so I think that uh, brings, may, may set us up for talking about uh, the I or exploring the Iowa idea yeah. in a couple different ways through, through some of the work that I've been doing. Right. And what, uh, what initially drew you to Iowa? Originally school, I think that's a common story. Um, I originally wanted to study filmmaking. And so I set my sights on uh, the University of Southern California, USC, where they uh, print filmmakers for a living. And I did all the rigmarole to get into that school. And uh, at the end of the day, my family couldn't afford to send me there. So I ended up um, at the University of Iowa, which at the time seemed like uh, about as far away as you could get from Los Angeles and New York. Uh, I mean, you literally can't get farther away <laughs> from Los Angeles and New York where they make films than Iowa City. Um, but little did I know uh, that pathway would lead me uh, in such a different way. I don't, I don't do much filmmaking these days, but my introduction to Iowa City, the University of Iowa, the communities, there, the creative community there, um, really sent me on this really interesting path where I think a lot about how to how do you intentionally build communities that support creativity, innovation, and entrepreneurship. 
Uh, and I'm so thankful, uh, even though at the time it was a pathway, uh, the pathway to Iowa was actually like, it was kind of against my will. That's what I love about creativity. You never know where it's going to take. Thanks. I don't know if you know if this came up in our conversation. I initially started as an undergrad at the University of Iowa as a a, a double major uh, focusing on film and pre-dentistry. <laughs> that's, I mean, that's great. I studied filmmaking and business. And the thing that was always wild about that is when I was in, uh, you know, the film school, they'd be like, who's the guy in khakis and the button shirt. And then when I'm up at the business school, they're like, who's this dude talking about creativity. And so actually the convergence of like divergent things is, yeah. is at the center of both of our stories. And uh, you, you're at the you're at the Kaufman Foundation. Can you tell me just a little bit more about uh, your role there and and what the the Kaufman Foundation uh, its mission? Sure. So the Kaufman Foundation was founded by a guy Ewing Marion Kaufman, who was born uh, poor in rural Missouri, died a billionaire. Uh, probably most famously uh, uh, brought the Royals to Kansas City, but but before that started a, a pharmaceutical company in his basement and eventually sold it for a number of billion billions of dollars. And so. When asked why he could be so successful, Mr. Kaufman said because he got a great education and 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 the chance to be an entrepreneur. So the foundation invests a lot in uh, education in, in Kansas City, Missouri, and, and entrepreneurship nationally, which I think is more famously known. And so I have been doing work uh, around thinking about how you build these communities that support entrepreneurs for my entire, basically, professional career in various forms. I'm sure we'll get into that in a bit. Yeah. Uh, but the Kaufman Foundation reached out to me a number of years ago and said, hey, this thing that you've been doing uh, sort of organically, we actually think is the future of economic development. Uh, how do cities and communities intentionally build uh, structures to support people with ideas, entrepreneurs, right? Create. Right, right. And you've been thinking a lot about it. We'd love you to come join the team and help us think about how we can invest the foundation's funds and helping to accelerate that as a, uh, accelerate that idea. And so that idea really is this notion of what you would call entrepreneurial ecosystem building, or how do you intentionally build communities that support entrepreneurs, creatives, and innovators? And how do you do that on really a local level? So whether you're Des Moines, Iowa, Albuquerque, New Mexico, or, you know, Tupelo, Mississippi, what activities do you need to do to support, to, to create an environment that's more supportive people with ideas, entrepreneurs, innovators, creatives, whatever you want to call them. So my team thinks a lot about that and how do we sort of propagate some of these practices to more communities in the United States. That's great. I, and I love I love that approach because, you know, just a little bit of background um, from my perspective, you know, I grew up in Rockford, Illinois, and um, I mean, just putting it bluntly, it's, it's a failed factory town, right? Like a lot of the Rust Belt that uh, it was great for generations, you could you could go work at a factory, you know, just high school education. You could start pushing a broom or, or in the mailroom. And if you were, you know, good work ethic, right, you could, you could climb up, you could have a career and you could, you could have a, a comfortable middle-class life. 70s, that starts to decline. And, uh, you know, almost like from a strategic doing perspective that we took, that it's a complex adaptive system that these economies are dealing with, but people are applying old models those jobs never came back and a, and a community starts to decay. And like, I just, I always, always wonder like what, what could happen with communities when people are intentional about not letting it slip. And I'm probably painting with two simplistic broad brushes, but when I, when I hear about what you're like, how, how do you really 
stoke innovation, stoke creativity for for community good, right? Not not just building the next Yelp or like some some app, but really for community good. From your perspective, what are some themes that you've seen that can really help catapult uh, communities to to embrace an entrepreneurial or innovative spirit? Yeah, that's a great question. Before I answer, I want to I want to tell a bit of a story, which is that I think the context you just mentioned there is actually really important. So you sort of mentioned that Rockford was you know this manufacturing town, and it, it sort of isn't that anymore. Well, that that describes a lot of towns in America. Um, and if you look at the towns and the cities that are thriving now, uh, at least economically, you look at a lot of towns that have that have embraced uh, entrepreneurship. Uh, innovation technology. So you look at the Austins and the Seattles and obviously the Silicon Valleys. And I think um, one important piece of context that, um, that that really came to me through some of my travels, and we can talk about that in a little bit, is that what we're actually dealing with in this moment, and frankly, COVID-19 and everything that's happened in 2020, is, is actually reaffirm my belief in the idea that what we're actually doing right now is transitioning from the industrial age to some new era that doesn't have a name. And so what I mean by that is that the industrial age is like, you know, essentially the third, third human era. If you really, if you, if you generalize and look at the really, really big picture. So we started out as hunter gatherers, sort of human society, and then humans transitioned into an agrarian society. That's where we all got into farming. This is over thousands of years. Right, right. right. And then we actually shifted into cities, which if you think about it is very recent in human history. I mean, that was, that really only started the industrial age is really only about 250 years ago that we started getting into capitalism and in cities and cities as hubs of innovation. Uh, there's lots of really interesting writing on how cities accelerated innovation, that innovation, that connectivity that cities created actually led us into, or accelerated us to get to the point where we could come up with the internet the internet actually accelerates more technology, more innovation, which drives the speed up at exponential rates. And it's really driving us into a new human era following the industrial age. So I will make the case mostly to be extremely, uh, try to be interesting on this podcast. <laughs> but I, I would say uh, with a lot of confidence that we will look back in 50, 100, 300, 500 years, and we'll say 2008, give or take a decade, is going to mark the transition from the industrial age to some new age. We don't even have a name for it. Most people don't know that we're here yet. Obviously, people that listen to a podcast like this probably don't need to be told that things are changing. And so when you look at some of those patterns, some of those things that I have seen, particularly from my travels, frankly, the more I travel, the more I go to different cities, not just in the U.S., but around the world, there's, I, there's four patterns that I talk about a lot. The first pattern I see over and over and over again is that entrepreneurship, innovation, and creativity have been democratized. And what I mean by that is if you have an idea of something you want to create, the barriers to entry have just collapsed, right? All the tools, all the resources, all this education is literally in a little device in your pocket for most people in the world. And the access to that information democratizes entrepreneurship. It still is difficult to, to make your idea extremely successful, widespread, et cetera. But the ability to start has never been easier as long as you have access to the internet and some of the technology required to do that. Yeah, and, and just just thinking about both of us being interested in filmmaking, and I'm a little bit older than you, but in our lifetime, 
what it meant to have expensive equipment to even like oh. pre-digital, like it, it, it also had to get uh, film had to get developed. Right. And, and yeah. sound. And when you think about like the visual and sound quality on an iPhone and, you know, uh, shareware, freeware, or even on a Mac, but you can, you can, you can make a high quality movie that like when, when I was, when I was starting taking film classes, it was clear, Oh, this is a student film. Right. Oh. And, but from a production quality in, in many ways, like just to your point that the technology in your pocket becomes so strong that some of the, what were barriers uh, get eroded. Not, not, not that everything's solved with, with just a technology solution, but I, I, I'm a firm believer in, in what you're saying as well. There, there, are, there are very little technical barriers if you have access to just basic technology. Today. Just yep. to put that in context, I graduated from film school about 20 years ago. I had an option to go uh, you know, get a job in the industry and work my way up. The other way you can get it into Hollywood is to make a signature film and you know, do the Spike Lee route, and everyone knows who you are. Now it's a it's a challenging route, but I, I thought that seemed like a pretty good idea at the age of 23. And so I looked at buying a, a high definition film kit 20 years ago. This is not that long ago. It was going to be $30,000, which at the time when you're 23 seems like unbelievable amounts of money, right? That same technology is literally in my pocket. And if I could buy a used iPhone 6 and get what would have been 20 years ago, $30,000 worth of technology. Now you still have to be able to tell a good story. You still right, have to right. find actors. You still have to get distribution yourself to market. But the barriers to entry to like go shoot a film, like just go shoot a film. And that's what I tell any 23 year old. I'm like, they're like, I want to, I want to go into Hollywood. What should I do? I'm like, go just start shooting stuff, put it on YouTube, frankly, put it on TikTok at this point, yeah. um, get it out there and see what happens. And that technology has been marching on and on. I even, I saw an ad yesterday for the new After Effects. And some of the stuff that you can do with After Effects now, I was thinking back even like five years ago, like that would have been industrial light and magic. <laughs> and you literally did a click and you can just do it in After Effects. And I thought, holy moly, yeah. technology is not the barrier, the willingness to do it, the willingness to, 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 to do what it takes to be creative and to hone your craft. That's, that's, that's your barrier in most cases, especially middle-class live in America, if, if, you know, where, where I, in my sort of setting. You know, there's no excuses not to tr at least try. Yeah. So sorry, I cut you off. That was pattern one, and I, I apologize. I, I I cut you off of your on your four patterns. No, you're good. Pattern number two uh, is this notion I always refer to as the individual has been globalized. And what I mean by that is, in the industrial age, corporations were globalized, so they could find resources anywhere in the world. They could organize them together into something, and then sell, distribute, give away, share that thing anywhere in the world. That right in this new era that doesn't really have a name yet. There's lots of names for it, actually, if you look around. <laughs> that right has been afforded to almost every individual, right? And so uh, uh, even, you know, your ability to just find information, again, right there on the internet, put it together in a new way, in a unique way, in an innovative way, you can now distribute it into the world almost instantly for essentially no cost. That's pattern number two. The third pattern, which becomes really relevant in some of the work that I do, I'll, I'll say it, I'll describe it as networks are replacing hierarchies. So the industrial age has a lot of very strong values and things that we sort of take for granted because we all, I mean, at least if you're of a certain age, you grew up in the industrial age era. And so one of those is hierarchy. The other one, another one's efficiency, but we looked at hierarchies and efficiencies. And, you know, if you want to think of what are all the values of the industrial age, picture in your head, whatever I say, when I say 
you know, Henry Ford's car factory, whatever you just pictured has all the values of the industrial age. It's not to say they are important. It's not to say efficiency isn't important. It's not to say hierarchy is important in 2020. But what we're seeing is networks overtaking these hierarchies. So there's so many examples. And when I first started noticing pattern was like late 2000s, and it's just been reaffirmed over the last 10 years. And so whether you say the banking crisis in 2008, hierarchies uh, uh, collapsing, right? When you look at journalism, it's a giant set of hierarchies collapsing. When you look at I mean, look at the federal, U.S. federal government, probably the largest hierarchy in the world. It's having some issues. I don't know if you noticed, but it's having some issues. Um, but even if you look at the biggest movements of the last couple of years, so you could look at the Arab Spring, I guess the last decade, you look at Black Lives Matter. And, I, and if I say, well, who's the leader of that movement? You can't name anyone. It's because it is primarily run by a network, not by one individual at the top. If you even look at terrorist networks, you take Al-Qaeda or the Taliban, the reason they've been so effective is because they're organized more in networks and they're taking on hierarchies, U.S. military. And so like things like the U.S. military stumbled very early on because they were network, they were hierarchies yeah. and they were fighting a network. And so did you read they, team of teams? Yeah, that's such a good, that's such a great book where yeah. they're, and for those that have read it, it's Stanley McChrystal, general Stanley McChrystal talking a bit about basically how the United States military is losing the war against Al-Qaeda because they were more nimble, they were quick, they used knowledge, they used networks. And so they had to redesign basically the function of the U.S. military to be able to compete. That's a good example of network. Yeah, because I, I, I do love that example. And those, those, are loose net, those were loose networks, right? Because if you, if you, like old terms, if you stack them almost on balance sheets, like, okay, U.S. military, Al-Qaeda, U.S. military can just like walk in and do what it wants, right? It's like billions and billions and trillions of dollars versus some scraggly guys with some internet phones. Like that's right. How it started, right. Right. And then, and then what I, what I liked about like kind of McChrystal too, is like also to your point about like hierarchy and efficiency, but one of the things where he said, like one of the kind of like tropes and old symbols of military leaders was a, a very nice map. Right. And uh, they they basically had very detailed maps, but people don't want to change map. Look, it, it's like prototyping the the higher the level of fidelity, the less likely you want to change it. And like one of their breakthroughs, too, was get those maps out of here. We're basically moving to sketches and whiteboards. And, you know, when they realize that a, a loosely connected network is a lot more nimble and it's it's just real squishy. Right. It's hard to get to. But uh not to dwell on, on on war uh, metaphors, but I, I I did find that incredibly important for just a lot of things that we're facing today. Yeah, well, I think one of the examples in the book that obviously applies to military in the book, but also like business and creativity is, you know, in hierarchies, the decision-making is centralized. So he talks a lot about in that book about like, if you were a special ops person and you were in Afghanistan and you were on a mission and you had a moment to make a decision, whether that was you were going to, go left instead of right, or you're going to shoot somebody or whatever it is. I don't know anything about special ops, um, but that's my picture of it at least. <laughs> they would literally have to call like three people to get to the Pentagon and be like, hey, the Pentagon, can I go left instead of right? And he talked a lot about how that was really challenging when your adversary is moving like a ninja, basically. And so how they had to redesign um, um, parts of the military to allow 
to basically, I think the way they say it in the book, if I remember, is to push decision-making down the hierarchy, right? Yep. And I think that's such a great example when you think about your own business or entrepreneurship and, you know, wanting to sort of centralize it in the founder or the CEO, but ultimately you, one individual cannot manage all of the decisions that have to happen in such a complex and interconnected world. So you have to push that out. So that book, that's such a good, that's a good example. And I, and I, I, I that book, I was so fundamental in helping me understand how you move from hierarchy to network. Like literally, what does it look like? Cause it sounds good to say, it sounds catchy. It makes a good sound bite for a speaker, but like that book literally walks through. And, and in the case of McChrystal took 15 years uh, for the US military to sort of literally redesign it and how uncomfortable it was for folks in the military. And it's probably still is frankly. Right, right. The 200 years of history mm-hmm. of the US military operates. So, so that's the third one. Uh, networks are replacing hierarchies. And then the fourth pattern, just to wrap us up on this bunch, is uh, what I can see, it becomes incredibly clear to me, uh, is that geography doesn't have a monopoly on good ideas. And so what I mean by that is not all the smart people live in Silicon Valley, right? Like people with good ideas, creative ideas, creative talents, innovative talents, they live everywhere. But what, but what my career has been really thinking about is, but what are the structures? What are the systems that have to be in place so those people can make those ideas happen? And so in the context of, we'll use entrepreneurship because that's what I think a lot about, the places that have spent intentional energy to build systems to support people with ideas are the ones that are thriving today. So if you look at Silicon Valley, the good thing, the one thing to remember is that 65 years ago, Silicon Valley was apple orchards. It is now the source of a lot of innovation particularly technological innovation that drives the entire world, the entire world economy. But 65 years ago, it was apple orchards. But people intentionally built and created a place where people could come and make, you know, to foster ideas. There's lots of factors that went into that. We can perhaps dive in that later. You look at Austin, Texas, you say, okay, Austin, it's, you know, second entrepreneurial capital of, of the United States. You actually have to go back 30 years to about the 1970s. And there was a group of folks in Austin when it was cow country that said, hey, we're gonna make this a place to support technological innovation. And you know, everyone's like, oh, South by Southwest 2008, Twitter came, that made Austin. No, 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 that was certainly part of the journey, but there was an intentional effort by community leaders uh, in the late 1970s that they cultivated that um, over time and you know, things like the Dell computer company and Texas Instruments contributed to that. And over time, that, that sort of genealogy of technological innovation that attracted talent helped. Uh, South by Southwest was formed, I think, 30 years ago. So that was the seeds of it. But places that intentionally build those communities are the places where innovation and entrepreneurship thrive. And so if you're a community leader, you got to think about that. And if you're a person who wants to be creative, innovative, you got to think about how am I fostering the environment? What is the environment in which I'm in? Because it's incredibly important and where creativity and innovation and entrepreneurship come from. Thanks. Yeah. And just throwing one other kind of tech city, uh, U.S. tech city in the mix is thinking about um, Seattle too, right? And if, if you if you back up like just on the cusp of Microsoft, it was it was it was really uh, a decent sized kind of like fishing town with Boeing, right? But now now when you think about uh, mm-hmm. Amazon and you think about Microsoft and Mm-hmm. Uh, also, like just all of the all of the money that is in when you go even like Paul Allen's Experience Music Project, sure. and, 
But I'm, I'm curious to, from your perspective as a social entrepreneur, as a creative, is some of this to me sounds like an intentional mixing of things that didn't normally go together. Mm. Uh, almost, almost to your point, uh, may, maybe you were a little bit too business casual for for film school, and maybe you were too too creative in the business side. But when these things start to Clyde doesn't make it sound like a good, but when they come together, uh, like some some of the chemical reactions that you might see, but it feels like you you need to be intentional with those experiments. Uh, sure. Yeah, no, I think that's right. So, so two of my mentors who actually uh, live in Iowa, in Iowa City, John, John and Sandra Hudson. I don't know if you ever met them, but they are. I, John and Sandra are they. They must be in their 80s by now. I, I, I actually need to look them up. You need to have them on the show. Uh, they are um, they are uh, a retired couple uh, who, who, if you dig into their history, John was a sociology professor at Harvard who studied creativity for his entire career. Sandra and John opened the first co-working space in Boston in like the 70s, but they didn't have another word for co-working space. And they have, um, they're just a fascinating couple who've been thinking about creativity for, for, for much longer than I have. And John has this definition of creativity that he taught me when I was about 23 years old, and I'll, I'll never forget it. And it, it frankly is the central pillar of my work. And um, it is, it is, and I love it because it's so simple. Creativity is one of those words like love or, or innovation that's a little loosey-goosey. A lot of people use it. What are we talking about? But here's John Hudson's definition. Creativity is the synthesis of diverse elements. Creativity is the synthesis of diverse elements. And here's why I love that definition. First of all, it's like less than 100 words, which is great. <laughs> but then it gets really clear like, oh, I want to be more creative. Well, there's two things you can do. You can increase the amount of inputs, or you can get better at synthesizing them together. It's the only two things you can do in that definition, right? And so the more you can expose yourself to, the more you can, you know, sort of incorporate into your own experience, and then your ability to sort of synthesize them together ultimately creates creativity. So to your point about diverse inputs, mm -hmm. the more people you can get together, the more sort of collisions of ideas, which is a pretty common phrase, uh, uh, is, is ultimately generates more creativity. I, uh, one of my favorite books, sort of a foundational text in this world that's easy to read is Stephen Johnson's Where Good Ideas Come From. I was just going to ask you, right? Because it was like, what did, what, what, ha like, what, what was the role of port cities hundreds of years ago? Oh, that's exactly what it was. And, and he borrowed a, a phrase uh, from another uh, a researcher in that book, but he popularized it, I think, which is, uh, you know, uh, these innovative environments are places where ideas come to have sex, right? Where these multiple ideas come together. And so if you want to, I mean, not to overly land the, 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 the podcast message, but the Iowa idea of taking people from different backgrounds and sort of mashing them together, that's where innovation and creativity come from. And the more diverse, the more, the more uh, uh, unrelated the ideas are. And then the, the ability to find a, a platform or a place or a community or a university or whatever, where you can synthesize those ideas, that's where new ideas come from. That's where innovative ideas come from. Yeah, that's great. A couple of things that, that I just want to build on in that is uh, from, you know, on kind of my day job perspective as like, you know, d designer and, and working with innovation teams is 
the the real simple version that we try to break things down into is a double diamond of a right problem, right solution. And the, the diamond is really representing divergent thinking and then convergent thinking. So go wide first. What might this problem be? How might we consider it, frame it? And then, and then we converge, define the problem. And once you understand the problem uh, as well as you think you can, and then again, you go divergent on that diamond uh, mm -hmm. uh, as far as the solution and then convergent on, on how might we solve that. But a big thing that I've always worked with my design teams is that analysis and synthesis. So I, I, I love that definition of creativity. I've never heard that before, but it, it does, it does align with what I believe is like good practice. And far as like really attacking and understanding a problem, which I still think is, is the core of what you need. If you don't understand the problem. If you, if you break it down to the actual, I think biology, biology, is that the right word right there? Um, that, that I think Stephen Johnson mentioned in the book is is also this notion that that an idea is literally a network in your brain. So your synapses capture things through your life and then your brain connect literally connects the physical, your brain bridges and connects things. And so that an innovative or creative idea is actually the nexus of multiple ideas. And that, so on a, on a, on a sort of biological micro atomic scale or whatever scale that is, yeah. you literally are synthesizing ideas because it's a network. But then to what I spoke of earlier, networks, human networks, then synthesize lots of ideas, which ultimately lead to more creativity and innovation. It works on like all levels of the system. It's very, it's very nested, like a, like a Russian nesting doll. Like it works on yeah. all levels of the system, but it's that synthesis that's the hard part because I can dump in a bunch of ideas, but how do you sort through them and sort of piece them together? And I, I, one of the things I love reading about is like, or, or looking at, there's a fascinating book um, I was looking at a couple of years ago, which was like the journals of all the really famous creative people. And so like, like the notion that like, like uh, Newton's, all the ideas of Newton's laws were in his journals decades before he actually was able to clearly articulate them. I think it's the same uh, with the theory of evolution, with uh, other things that you've read uh, or, or heard of, but it took years and activity by those people to, to sort of synthesize them into clear, distinct things. And it's that gestation period where they, where you sort of collide and converge and then go, no, that's not it. And then you diverge and try again. I mean, that yeah. has some creativity. Uh, literally in, physiologically in your brain, but also, you know, the ideas in, in your life and your world and communities, et cetera. To give, uh, cause I'm, yeah, I am a big fan of Steven Johnson's writing and to give him a little bit more credit on that one too, for me, it was that helpful frame of the slow hunch, Ooh. right? That it, it's, it's not, it's, it's not like this individual eureka moment. It's a lot of times it's these, these other things coming together and and you know, is is for me, and and one why I'm a big fan of collaboration, is it's rarely the lone genius in history. You get a lot of credit, like the lone genius gets credit, right? But Steve Jobs wasn't the only person employed at Apple, right? Edison wasn't the only person at the Edison factory. It's also, I mean, that's also an American narrative, like that we love, which is like the one dude, typically white, typically a dude going, <laughs> I've got it. I've invented democracy or whatever. But in fact, it was John Wayne strolls into town and gives you right. his new invention. Yeah. 
Exactly. And, and that's not actually how it happens. And it's typically a group of people. Like if you want to create creativity, you've got to create a network of people. Now the aha, oh shit moment may come as a benefit of all those inputs. And it may feel like it happened in a moment, but it actually hope it, hope right. it happened through that slow hunch period. And it is, I always, I always describe it as the, and you can see it over and over in entrepreneurial communities. I call it the theory of the half idea, which is, you know, that idea sounds good. It's not quite right, but somewhere else, someone has the other half of this idea. You just need to start talking to people. That, and, and that, that half idea is a lot where a lot of great ideas come from, but you got to go find the other half of the idea. You know what that, I, I love that. And uh, so uh, years ago, early in my career, I worked at Capella University, an online university at, uh, back when it was even questioned, can we do online education right now? We're like just living it every day for better or worse. But 20 years ago, can we do that? But the founder of the company was uh, Steve Shank. Uh, he, prior to that, he was CEO of Tonka Toys, but he, he's an Iowa City guy. Um, and one of his pieces of advice related to collaboration, the way he would frame it is, nobody has dealt the full deck of cards. What, you, what your skill is, figure out what cards you have, and then whatever you want to figure out who else has the other cards that you need, that's kind of what you need to do, right? And so I do like that. One is really just give yourself an honest assessment where you're at, what do you have, and then go find the people that will complement that or complete that idea. So I, I'm a, a big fan of your, like that kind of the half idea. If you look at entrepreneurship, you boil it down to its simplest form. It's very, it's very straightforward. It's incredibly complex, but it's very straightforward. Your process as an entrepreneur is literally to go around and ask questions and get the information you need to, to sort of solve for the, for the thing you're doing. And out there in the world, people have those, they have that information. I mean, you don't know how to manufacture a thing in China. You don't know how to raise money. You don't know how to. And so by going around just literally asking questions and talking to people, you can gain that knowledge, that information, that insight, that access to resources by asking questions. And then your job is to sort of fit it all together with a business model yep. and ultimately turn it into a, into a company. And I think that many entrepreneurs make this mistake of just running around and talking and just sort of trying to sell their baby. Look at my baby. My baby's really cool. It's really beautiful. You should look at my baby when in fact the actual role is to find the other half of their idea by asking right. questions and talking to people who might have more expertise in some area of their business that they don't fully understand. Thanks. I want to dig in a little bit because um, you know, getting ready for our conversation, just doing a little bit of research, I think one of the most interesting things uh, from my perspective so uh, is the amount of time you spent globetrotting, right? That, that you, you've, you've been in, and, and I don't, I don't want to misrepresent it the way that my mental model is in about four years, you traveled the world and, and visited more than 40 countries. That's true. Depending on how you count a country, but yes, uh, four years. Uh, yeah. The four years is correct. And then somewhere around the realm of 40. And what, one, what drove that? And then I, I'm just really curious too, on like what, what insights, Sorry, this is so ham-fisted, but like kind of what insights like, aha, I thought this was true. And now I see this pattern, like you talked about before, or holy shit, I've had this all wrong. And now that I've actually seen the world, because I love the Midwest, I love all the people in the Midwest. Uh, but if you don't travel outside the Midwest, 
you have a very limited perspective on the world. So I'm just kind of curious on what you learned and what might have yeah. been amplified or what was like a kind of new insights for you? Well, I'll, I'll share that story, but I want to tell you a story before that story. And I don't usually tell the story, but it has a lot to do with creativity, uh, craft, uh, all of that. And um, so I'll take, take, so when I was, I'll take it back. So I was 16 years old. I grew up in Omaha, Nebraska, and I, and I wanted to do filmmaking. Uh, and I ended up having the opportunity to meet the first Hollywood director in my life, a guy named Donald Petrie, who uh, most famous as director of Grumpy Old Men. His brother was, is still a director. I think he might still direct. His mother was like, or his, was the producer of Happiness. I mean, it's like a Hollywood family. So when you're 16, you grow up in the Midwest and you get a chance to meet a film, an actual filmmaker who's had a movie you've seen. It's like, wow, it's a big thing. This is before the days of the internet uh, right. and, and TikTok and Instagram. But at the end, he, he came to the local university and he shared his story and talked about filmmaking. And I went very sheepishly up. My dad had to like push me up there. I remember this uh, to talk to him. I was a very shy kid. And I asked him, um, I told him, I said, I want to do what you do when you, when I grow up, I want to want to be a director. And I have a question, should I go to film school or should I apprentice in the industry? It's a very practical question. Right? And uh, he paused and he looked at me and he said, um, well, I would actually um, do neither. I would move uh, uh, to Spain and I would, uh, you know, maybe, st uh, maybe explore cooking. And I was like, wait, what? No, I don't think you understood my question. Okay, I'm gonna go to, I'm gonna go to film school. I have two options, not move to Spain and do cooking. And he said, I'm gonna, I wanna, I, he said, this is actually the advice my father gave me uh, a generation before. And he said, if you wanna do what I do, which is to be a, f a movie director, you have to have something to say. And if, if you want to make movies and be a camera guy or lighting guy, go to film school to teach how to use a camera, how to be a lighting guy. And then you can go light other people's films and you can shoot other people's movies with the camera. But if you want to have something to say, you got to have life experience. You got to have something you want to tell the world. And then once you figure that out, you can hire the lighting guy and the film guy to go help you do that. But if you want to have life experience, I would say go to Spain and, and, and explore the food or go, go to China and see what it's like to live. And I'm not saying this is the entire reason I traveled around the world, but it certainly played a part. And so I graduated from college. I was 23 years old, uh, University of Iowa, to tie back in with the show's theme here. Uh, and I was bright. I, the way I always tell it is I was bright eyed and I was bushy tailed and I wanted to change the world. I think I'm sure a lot of your listeners can late but I realized very quickly upon my graduation that I had a huge problem which is I wanted to change the world but I literally had no idea how it worked because I spent my entire life in a classroom I had never seen it and I traveled around the U.S. but like most Americans I had never left the country and so I realized and I'm thankful that I realized that it at the age that 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 I that it was arrogant and egotistical of me to want to change the world it's very American when I look back at it now, but change the world. I never literally seen the place. I haven't seen the world, but yeah. I can make no, it better. But I'm going to change it, right? Like, <laughs> welcome to welcome to be an American. And um, and so so I I looked around at all the ways you could travel, and you could do everything from the Peace Corps to volunteer at a wildlife refuge in Costa Rica. You could teach English in China. You could backpack across. I mean, when you know, I, where I was at in my life, there was a lot of options, and the only problem was I didn't have any money. So 
I owed the federal government at the time about $25,000 in student loans, which if you think about it, is a great reason to leave the country. <laughs> so I decided that the only way to do it was to do, it was very straightforward, get a normal job and save up money. And so I did that. And well, all my fellow graduates were buying new cars and bigger houses and buying cool stuff. I just like stayed at a college budget because that was what I knew. And I set a goal of three years. And, and I said, at the end of three years, no matter what I have, I'm just going to go. And so at the age of 26, I quit my job. I sold everything I owned with a backpack, a virgin passport, and a one-way ticket to China. I just left. And I, I'd never been outside the country in my entire life. I was incredibly scared. The goal was to go around the world for a year. And frankly, I didn't think it would last that long or I'd make it that far. And I ended up coming back four years later. So I lived, worked, and traveled in about 40 different countries. The purpose sounds sort of naively simple, but was, was literally to live like the locals, to see how people live yeah. in the world. And so I did all sorts of just weird things. So um, which you may, your research may have shown, I, I uh, worked in a dress factory in Bangkok. I lived in a Buddhist temple in Korea. I had a background in filmmaking, so I worked in two films in Bollywood. And then they invited me in front of the camera and I do not act. So I played a 19th century British soldier in one of the most expensive Bollywood movies ever with Salman Khan. Uh, your listeners cannot see this, but I'm half Asian. I'm not exactly British in the traditional sense of uh, 18th century or 19th century Bollywood movies. Um, I lived on a 500,000 acre cattle ranch in Australia. I, I joined a team doing cataract surgeries in the South Pacific. I did not do the surgeries, I took pictures. But I saw the world, and if you want did to talk you do about any the, food work in Spain, uh, I did not learn about <laughs> Spanish food, but I did learn about food about everywhere. And ultimately, let me tell you, uh, it it the world is the food in the world is amazing. You know, ultimately, and and I, I mean, you want to talk about the synthesis of diverse elements? Like yeah. if you spend four years traveling around the world for as cheap as possible, traveling overland there's a lot of stuff that that sort of you see and making, I mean, it's taken, it's been a decade since I got back from that trip. I am still making sense of it uh, many days, but I will say some of those patterns that I shared earlier, those four patterns, like they come out of that experience. And, and when you see the same pattern in, you know, the skyscrapers of some of the biggest metropolises down to the dusty corners of some of the countries you didn't even know existed, it's, it really makes an impression where you're like, Oh, that, that thing that happened in Bahrain is very similar to that thing that happened in Tibet, and then you ultimately recognize, which is what I would say is the, the probably the biggest lesson for my trip around the world is that cultural and language differences aside, we're all much more similar than we're led to believe. And it's the similarities that keep us connected and the differences which keep it super interesting. That That's awesome. Uh, I have not uh, traveled nearly as much as you, but I do. Um enjoy any time that I can can travel especially when I can get out of the country and and connect with others but this is just anecdotal one of the things that I've found is some of the most interesting people I meet you know and it, it's it's not like it's not like they're marathoners or crossfitters or vegetarians who the first thing they tell you is that like I do crossfit right but it, it's people that have spent time in a non uh I don't know, like a non-vacation spot out of the country. Like just what you've, you've talked about and a, a good friend of mine, we actually met while he was doing postdoc work here. 
Uh, he grew up in Quebec, uh, but he wasn't sure what he wanted to do with his life. He spent he spent a year working on a ranch in Australia. Mm-hmm. He had a few hundred dollars in his pocket and said, just basically, I got to go figure things out and I got to do it on my own, right? Without my parents. He had his, he, he finished his undergrad. Now he's, he's a brilliant researcher and he's, uh, he was actually a couple of years ago was uh, Canada's uh, young research scientist. He, but, and it's not something that he, it, it's just after a while when you're talking to him and then he's like, oh yeah, no, this is like, and 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 maybe you've had some similar experiences, but he's like, oh no, that's what it was like working on a ranch in Australia. Like, what? <laughs> oh yeah, we had it. But what I love about it, it's it's these, it like it's like your mental models get expanded, and then you have all of these other patterns or tools in your toolkit to say, oh, I've seen something like this before. Here, here's how it's addressed here, rather than just one mental model of. Here, here's what it's like to be in a creative town in the U.S. Yeah, I think that what I would even say, I'll take it even further and say your mental models get blown up because, you know, when you grow and live up in one culture, you just assume this is the way things are done. Mm-hmm. And then you like, you don't question it because it's just the way things are, you know, it's just like, well, that's what we do. And then you see stuff and you're like, wait, you can do that? And then, but then when you travel, it's like every day you're just like, wow, I thought I really ah, I don't know that, that, oh my God. And it's, it's like big things, like literally how you structure your life down to small things. Like one of my favorites is, is like, in, I don't know how much time you spent in China. I don't know what's China. Like they literally count the numbers one through 10 differently using their fingers. Like it's the basic thing. Like one, two, three, four, five, six, you put up your, you know, your 10 fingers done. No, in China, there's literally a different way to do it. And it's actually more efficient. It's like, whoa, you can do that on one hand. And like, that's like a really simple example, but it is like, it's like the, your head explodes when you realize like, wow, everything I thought was true might not be true. And there's a new or different way to think about the thing I assume to be a truth. And that, yeah, because if you have to even reconsider how to count to 10, <laughs> like, yeah, what have I accepted as brain. truth? Yeah. Right. And then it makes you question, you're like, well, I thought that was true, but if that's not true, what else do I know that isn't? true and so i think that travel is um travel like it really i mean it's like cliche to say it expands your mind but it just it it allows i I think it expands your mind and then your mind can't pop back into the shape it was right so once it starts expanding in different ways you're like i can't that's not going to fit in my brain anymore in that way because my brain is a different shape and i the other thing that i that travel does especially relating to creativity is 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 how uncomfortable it is i mean i think it sounds cool to be like i traveled around the world before it's very true but also incredibly uncomfortable and when i first started traveling i thought okay well after like the fifth or tenth country this is going to get easier but i don't know how many countries i've traveled to now but like whatever country i'm on now 50 or 60 the 60th country is still equally as anxious when you are landing on the plane and you're like, why did I agree to this? This was a terrible idea. I don't speak Kazakh. Like what is going on? This is going to be a disaster. I'm going to get lost. I'm going to get killed. I mean, your brain does whatever your brain does, but that what I learned the secret of travel is that especially if you're going outside the tourist zone and you're trying to just like experience cultures and, and be a, I guess a traveler, is that you really have to learn to be comfortable being uncomfortable because it is in that uncomfortability that you're learning, that you're expanding, that you're trying new things. And as a designer and a, you know, and a creative, I'm sure you're very familiar with when you push past the edge of your creative ability and you're like, this is gonna suck. 
or it's just you're, I'm, you get anxious because you don't know if you can land it. You don't know if you can figure it out. But what travel taught me was to be just like cool, even though I was so anxious and so uncertain and I didn't know what was going to happen. But somehow you sit in that and you're like, okay, well, I'm, cool. I'm, un- I'm comfortable being uncomfortable. I'm really uncomfortable right now. But then when you take it to like, like on one, you know, being in a war zone in Malaysia is one set of uncomfortable, right? Uh, which has implications in your real life. But like also when you're trying to land a project for a client and the deadline is tomorrow and you're like, I haven't figured this out yet. There's some similarities in that moment of just like, I'm not going to, I'm not going to ship a shitty thing. I'm not going to deliver a half-assed thing. I'm going to stick, I'm going to stick with it. I'm going to push this to the edge, this thing I'm doing for the client so that I can get to that level of creativity. But you, but, but, but the tendency of human, all humans, and if you've had guests that are psychologists, they can speak more of this, but when you're uncomfortable, the, like your whole body is trying to get out of being uncomfortable. But if you can sit in that uncomfortableness, learning happens. I will tell you that's where breakthroughs and innovations happen. And some of the most interesting thing ha- things happen to me traveling when I was in a very uncomfortable room with people because something was not comfortable and I just sat there and then eventually someone would be like, oh, well, welcome. Let, let me, let's go do this wild thing that I just dreamed up. And I'm like, wow, that sounds uncomfortable. Let's do it. And it ended up being the yeah. most memorable, most impactful thing that I was able to do. But you have to be able to sit in that creative tension in that moment, both as a traveler and as a creative, to be able to force yourself to come up with that creative and innovative solution. Thanks. Two, uh, two comments on that. Uh, one is, and, 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 you know, I don't know if this is apocryphal, but, uh, one, one of those, the stories I heard about, uh, okay. Computer, the record, it was actually, uh, Nigel Godrich who produced it. It was that the band Radiohead was in like this old countryside home in England. And at night he would fuck with the temperature so that they were in a constant state of discomfort because he thought that matched the the album theme, but also to get a little bit more out of the band. And so I'm a big, big fan of that. The other one, when you were talking about that, just bringing this back to film, but uh, as a film nerd, I don't, are you familiar with The Third Man? No. So, okay, uh, so Third third Man, ni- 1950s uh, movie. And there's this big kind of uh, plot twist. It's 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 post World War II Europe, and uh, there's a lot of money being made on the black market. And one of the things that's happening is kids are dying because uh, people are cutting uh, penicillin. Right? It's not as powerful, but you know, kids in the end. And this confrontation scene is happens on uh, on a Ferris wheel. But uh, one one of the statements is uh, it was basically. Um, in 50 years of the Renaissance, here's what's produced. And it's a litany of, of, of breakthroughs. And in 500 years of peace, the Swiss produced the cuckoo clock. Mm-hmm. So long. And it was just this like statement that like, you know, may, maybe it's good or bad, but it, it, it really stuck with me. But uh, that was the idea that tumult can create new things. And mm-hmm. to your point, we're, we're, we're in it now. We don't know what to call it, but... Oh. Well, a once a lifetime the, pandemic. The, the, yeah, the broken moment of all the constraints of, well, it used to be that way uh, does create new things. I, I, don't, I don't, do you listen to Sound Exploder, uh, which is a, a podcast? Or you not, not regularly, but yeah, once in a while. 
Well, so I love that podcast because it like gets into it like literally is the creative process for like all like all the songs. You're like, I love that song. And then they go into like literally how it's written. And so they're um it's it's a podcast, but it's also a Netflix series. Yeah. And I just watched the one on REM, uh, automatic for the people. And the way, I mean the to your temperature story, like they were kind of like a mid-level band. And so they were like, well, this is kind of going, this isn't going well. And so just to screw with people themselves, they changed instruments. They were like, ah, we're gonna, we're gonna just try new instruments. We're gonna play instruments we're not comfortable with. And nothing in the album says that that should be good. But ultimately it was this divergence from what they'd done before, everyone doing something different and not the normal patterns that ultimately created you know, one of the most iconic albums uh at least in my lifetime yeah it's thing it's like you you got to get yourself uncomfortable the band uncomfortable so that you can make something new and to your point like <laughs> in the world right now with this pandemic and everything that 2020s brought it's like so many things that well we could never really do that have just happened because we don't even know what the rules are anymore yeah i did i saw i saw the video version of that one what i loved about the two things that i loved about that was one is uh, how many number one pop songs have a mandolin as its lead instrument? Yeah, exactly. And, it, and when the, you think about that song, that song doesn't work without the mandolin. Right? Literally, it was the dumbest idea. Like at the time, they were like, oh, yeah, I'll play the mandolin. But it is a good example of like how you can innovate by just changing up the typical way of doing things or the typical way, typical way you do things in an attempt to be creative. Yeah, the the other element of that too is uh, like just Bill Bill Barry's kind of uh, witty. He realized that the hand claps actually made it. Like, here's somebody that made that song, and in my mind, they must know all the details, remember it. But just his like chuckliness that the the hand clap track actually made it into the final. To me, that was just kind of heartwarming. So, question for you: Going back to your patterns, going back to your work, your drive for social good. Um, I don't know. How did you get interested in the social good part? Because there, there's a lot of sexy things about entrepreneurism, entrepreneur and entrepreneur ecosystems. Talk to me just a little bit more about the social good aspect, because I, I'm, I'm kind of a bleeding heart guy in many ways. Uh, social good speaks to me, but I usually don't see social good and entrepreneur together. Sure. Well, I, w- I mean, for me, the origin goes back to my parents, as most people's stories do. My my father is a social worker, my mother's a nurse. And so I was raised to do good in the world, or they're told that you're sort of supposed to do good in the world. And where my dad's, you know, art was counseling families and children, and, and my mother's was counseling also families and children in a <laughs> slightly different way. Um, I think for me, my medium is still people, but the, the sort of approach is how do you help people make their ideas happen? I mean, that sort of is where it, where it boils down to. And there is a selfish joy that I have helping people make their ideas happen or create the environments where, where, where people can make their ideas happen. But I also know a human who is able to create and make those ideas happen is a happier human. Um, one of my mentors, and, a, and I'm very fortunate to count as a friend, is a, is a guy from Iowa, another guy from Iowa called, uh, named Ben Milne, who is uh, CEO and founder of a company called Dwalla. He was, and ben, was, ben is one of the most innovative guys I know. I think he was the MIT innovator of the year 
at one point he started uh, Dwala, gosh, almost a decade ago to rethink how money moves before, you know, all the things we do now around that. And um, I heard Ben speak once and, and he's just, uh, this quote really sticks with me, but he said, if you want to be happy, consume less and create more. I thought, oh God, that, that's it. Like that's the crispest, you know, way to think about it. And so I, I, it resonates, resonates with me because I've watched people come alive when they're able to create, especially when they have an idea in their head and they turn it into a thing. And so for me, the, the origin story is a, I'll share with you um, just because I think it's instructive. Uh, and it also is based in Iowa uh, and it's also based on the Iowa idea in the sort of Vegas sense, but um, it goes back to college. So it was, it was in college in Iowa city and I had a group of friends and we accidentally founded a nonprofit organization called the James gang, which is actually about probably 18, 19 years old. Now it's still around. I have nothing to do with it, but it's still around. And, and the origin story of the James gang is that there were, there's about seven or eight of us and we were, um, friends in college and back to your divergent ideas. Um, we all came from different parts of campus. And so I had run the student movie theater on campus. I had another friend who was in the theater department. And he knew all the theater kids and another friend, she was a writer and she knew all the writer kids. Another friend who was um, at the newspaper and he knew all the journalism kids. And we were, we were sort of talking about this on the porch at a house um, in Iowa City uh, and Iowa Ave. And, and what we realized in that conversation, I mean, we were doing, you know, what college kids do, which is sit around and drink beer and talk on a porch uh, and talk about ideas. And we realized we all knew a lot of really interesting people on campus, but they didn't know each other. And so wouldn't it be interesting if you just get those people together? And we're college kids, so what do we know how to do? Throw parties. So we started to throw these potluck parties that were just like every other college party you know, cheap beer, box wine. It's a potluck, but everyone brings chips. There's always like one person that cooks something. It's always a woman, props to the ladies, who actually cooks something like brownies. And then someone always brings a fruit tray from Hy-Vee. I don't, that I don't understand, but okay. And we would have these potluck parties. Again, they're just like every other college party, except for halfway through, we made everyone get in the living room and get in a circle and introduce themselves. So, you know, my name's Andy. I love filmmaking. My name's Matt. Um, I like design. My name's Mike. I love uh, volunteering. My name's Sarah and I've got a band and we're looking for a drummer. And then inevitably someone would be like, oh, my name's Evan and I'm a drummer and I'm looking for a band. And then people would start to connect at the parties and they would form bands. And so then they would come back to us and they'd be like, oh, hey, we started this band because of your party and you all seem to know everybody, but we can't find a place to play. Would you know a place that we could play and so we're like okay well we, we could probably solve for that you know a lot of people and so we ended up ultimately renting a room in the basement of the student union and doing this thing where we asked everybody to perform like eight people from the party to perform for 10 minutes and and they could do whatever they whatever their craft was comedy mu magic music i mean you name it and we thought oh well you know it seems like we should charge a little bit of money to get in and give that to charity and so the first event we were like, well, if all the all our artists, the creatives show up and their girlfriend, boyfriend, and we all show up, there'll be like 20 people, it'll be great. And the first event, like about a hundred people showed up and we raised like $500 for uh, uh, the, the women's shelter, I think. Yeah. And, um, but more importantly, there's this explosion of energy, right? And 
all these people are like, Hey, if you do this again, can I perform? Or that was awesome. Or, Hey, I know someone you should get to perform. And so we started doing that regularly and the energy that was created, we realized if we could direct that back in the community, everybody wins. So the creatives, the community, all, everyone wins. Right. And when, especially, you know, we were 20, some early twenties and, you know, a lot of folks have really creative ideas, but they literally have no idea how to turn it into a thing. Right. And so the James gang, uh, originally started out as just like a, a, I mean, it's sort of embarrassing to think back to it, but originally started out, we were going to be like this secret society gang thing that secretly went around and helped people make their ideas happen in Iowa. And we had code names, like, you know, and we, there was like an image of like, um, I remember one image in my head, at least I remember is like of Zorro, like Zorro leaves a Z mark, but you don't know who Zorro is, or at least before the movies. And that you would, there would be these things happening in Iowa City where people would be creative and you'd be like, wow, this is cool. Who did this? And it would be like the James gang. And everyone's like, what's the James gang? Well, we quickly realized that that like created a lot of issues of just like weirdness and elitism and all sort of secret society. And we also needed to get grants. And so ultimately we had to pay for this stuff. And so we had to get a grant for this idea called the 10,000 hour show. And the folks said, well, uh, you need to have a 501c3 nonprofit. And we're like, oh, what's that? And they're like, fill out this paperwork. So we filled out the paperwork, got this status, and suddenly we're this nonprofit organization. And, and you know, at the core of the, uh, the realization was that we were a bunch of 20-year-olds. We actually don't know a ton about how to make, help people make ideas happen. But what we realized, if you got all the people with ideas together and you connected them with each other, and then you surrounded them with people in communities that had access to resources and knowledge, typically older people, frankly, that had knowledge of how to get stuff done, how networks, money, that if you could do that, the, the community itself really becomes the incubator. And so I think we might've even called it, the James Gang's original tag was it's a community building or a community, creative community building company. And then, but I, I think we even referred to it as community as incubator. And, um, and so that was the origins of, of, of my work uh, and, and sort of accidentally doing that, accidentally starting and accidentally discovering with this group of friends. And I would honestly say I've been playing with that idea since I was 23 years old. And it, the budgets get bigger, the yeah. platform gets a little bigger, the, the, you know, the, 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 you know, it's the same thing though. It's a, how do you create the environments in which people can foster creativity, innovation, entrepreneurship. And, uh, that, that's, the, that's the James Gang and kind of the root of my career. But again, to my earlier point, it, it all started in Iowa. And there is something about Iowa City where that Iowa D idea was born that this was not a wild idea to the adults in the room. Like we, we sort of were like, we're the James Gang and we're a clandestine group of people trying to make creativity happen. And the bankers in, this, in the community were like, oh, well, how can we help? I mean, I don't know if that made any sense to anybody but that I do think the roots of the Iowa idea, the roots of the University of Iowa, the collision of the engineering school and the medical school and the writing center or the, the writer's workshop. And just, there's something yeah. in the water there that this was not an extraordinarily wild idea. And ultimately, and I, and I say this not to sort of stroke anybody, my ego or anybody's ego, but to actually stoke Iowa City's ego. The organization uh, in its fourth year, 2006, was named the, the person of the year by the local paper. Oh, that's and, awesome. And, it, and, and I say that, yes, it was a bunch of young people and it was a lot of people, but it was like the community embraced the idea. And they said this, a bunch of 23-year-olds and 22-year-olds doing these things, it had the most impact of the community in 2006 and we're going to award them. And at the time, 
it was just a shock that anyone even understood what we were doing. But if you look back, it's been 20 years, a lot of really, really formative arts and cultural things that exist now got their start through the James Gang, music festivals and, and, and volunteer activities. And so that also baked into me this notion of that creativity, if directed, the energy that creativity creates, if directed to back at the community, everybody wins because people can create their creativity and it helps them individually, but it also has an impact on the community. And then 15 years later, I worked at the Coffin Foundation, 20, 30 years of entrepreneurship research says entrepreneurship is valuable to individuals. It helps them build wealth. It helps them, you know, their families succeed, but it also has a ton of impact on the communities, whether it's job creation, addressing the, the, the racial wealth gap. I mean, all of these things, entrepreneurships benefit not just the individuals who succeed, but the societies in which they live. Thank you. Yeah. And one of the things that hit me when you were you're describing the James Gang, too, is, you know, from an academic side of things, right? Because I teach a course at Iowa called Leading Innovation. And so it's it's in the it's in the Tippy College of Business. So right, and it's in a management and entrepreneurship track. And so when you're looking for an innovator, you always say, who is a who who started off as a filmmaker and pre-dentistry person? We want them in business, right? But um <laughs> What you're talking about too academically aligns so closely with innovation about front end and back end innovation. It's like one of the big things I stress to my students is it's like the the need for a balanced right brain, left brain. You do need the wildly creative ideas, but you need the ability to execute and operationalize for those to be successful. So like, like, like we have a wildly creative artistic idea. I also need somebody that knows how to write contracts. I know I, I need to know how to procure a venue, right? I got the creatives I can get in the venue, but I need the venue, right? And I see that in, that, that's a struggle for organizations today that are looking at sustainable innovation is how do you elegantly kind of mesh kind of the right brain, left brain, the creative and the operational. So I just love the, the story. I wish I, you know, I, I left Iowa City for grad school, and then I lived in Minneapolis, and then I returned about 11 years ago. My wife accepted a professor position in the College of Ed. So I, one of my regrets is that I kind of I missed this time period that you're talking about, that I was, I was not part of Iowa City then. Well, I think that in people, what's interesting is people, when we got really successful, like one of our projects, the 10,000 Hour Show, was built by these two college guys. The idea actually fairly simple, was put on a show by a nationally known performing artist, but the only way you can get in is to do 10 hours of creative serve, or you can do, sorry, 10 hours of community service. So you have 10 hours of community service times 1,000 people, 10,000 hours, that's where the name comes from. So the first year, it was like 2003 or four, Benfold performed, about 1,100 people did 37 hours of community service in, the, in, in Iowa City. And then that program eventually, thanks to a bunch of really amazing leaders, young people, expanded to Des Moines and Ames and the Quad Cities. And then eventually people came and said, can you do it all over the country, San Francisco and Chicago? And we were like, no, we're a bunch of 23 year old kids. We don't know how to do that. <laughs> and uh, ultimately that uh, idea got sold to the United Way of the World um, for a dollar <laughs> because United Way was looking for a way to engage young people. And then people said, well, can you bring the James Gang to our community? And also we're like we're a bunch of 22 year olds who don't know how to do that. But, but I think in, in all places, there is a need for the ideas of the James Gang, for creating these spaces where people can come together and collaborate, especially the creatives, innovators, and entrepreneurs to meet the, the folks who can help book the venues, sign the contracts, you know, run QuickBooks. And Iowa City, for many reasons, is, 
in its history is like built for that. And so the iteration of the James gang, there still is, the James gang does still exist. So you should go see what they're up to and join yeah. their board because they still are sort of a- Maybe join the gang. Hidden organization. <laughs> but you know, the, is it uh, the collab uh, that happens in Iowa State? There's a bunch of them now, but like yeah. there is so, that town is so ripe with spaces where those ideas collide. And one of the advantages, uh, you know, not just, Iowa City, but university towns is you get old people and young people mixing in the same spaces. And so you get the people with creative ideas and then you get the people, you know, typically older because they have networks and access to resources. And that merger of those two things is actually, I, I mean, I've seen the pattern over and over again is where the accelerant happens. It's where, where you actually mix generations. And in most communities that doesn't happen a lot, but Iowa City, like many college towns, is ripe. There's a ripe environment where where you're sitting next to some 18 year old young woman who has an idea, you have access to the network and resources and the willingness and the space to be able to connect with them, to be able to help that happen is, is not just you helping. It's also rewarding to you because it creates a thing in your community. Thank you. I, yeah, I, I really appreciate that. And, and I apologize because I, I realize this is going to be a ham fisted question slash statement, just, but I'm curious with your work, your experience, and as, as we talked at the beginning of the show, right, kind of this, this new era that we might be in that might not be labeled. Um, but when we look back, what do you think is going to separate the communities? And, and, and geography might not even be the right, right label, but still think about cities and communities. What's going to separate the ones that succeed and don't succeed, in your opinion? Sure. And I'm, just for our conversation, make it easier, I'm going to give it, I'm going to give this new era an age and I stole it from Seth Godin, um, who I'm sure you are familiar with and probably are a fan, but Seth calls it the connected age. Um, uh, you know, it's called a lot of other things. The age of yep. acceleration is, is uh, uh, the, the networked age. I mean, there's just the relationship mm -hmm. age, it's all these different names, but I like the connected age and we'll just use that for now. So we know what we're talking about. Um, I believe that the distinguishing factor of cities and communities in the connected age, the cities that will thrive are those that best help all people make ideas happen. So intentionally thinking about how do we cultivate the environments in which our citizens can do stuff, but the emphasis is on the word all, because in our communities today in the United States, in all of them, there are a lot of people that don't, don't, that don't feel included, aren't invited to participate. And by which I mean, just to be super clear, women, people of color, particularly black and Latino people, uh, immigrants, folks in rural communities. Like if you just look at the number of people who participate in entrepreneurship in those sectors, it is not equivalent to their white counterparts. If you look at who receives funding and support for their ideas, it is not uh, equivalent um, and the barriers that are faced by women, people of color, immigrants, and rural communities are significant. Now, someone may be listening and say, well, that's too bad for them, but it doesn't affect me. The problem with that. Au contraire, mon frere, right? <laughs> the problem with that is to recognize the demographic shifts that are already happening. Yep. So by mid-century, 2050, 2055, I mean, a little bit of, you know, somewhere in there, the United States will have no majority race or cultural group. So meaning the, the people that we call minorities today will make up a new majority of the country. 
And that's already set in motion. The kids are already yeah. born. It's mm-hmm. happening. Uh, the United States is becoming more racially diverse and also older. Um, entrepreneurship is focused in the public conscious in culture, in magazines, in media, a very small su- subset of entrepreneurs, typically young, typically white, typically male, stereotypically in flip-flops and hoodies, but you know, right, right. I get that demographic. But if we have a, a, a society that is more than half of it is people of color, more than half of it is women, and those people can't participate in the economy, can't participate in entrepreneurship, don't have wealth, don't have income, well, that's really going to be effect. That's really going to affect people who are looking for customers, who are looking for investors, who are looking for successful and thriving neighborhoods, who are looking for people that pay taxes. And we have to do a better job of building systems that support creativity, innovation, and entrepreneurship. Let alone health, education, and all the other systems that support people who have been traditionally faced either significant barriers or been left out. And this, again, doesn't just affect people of color, women, immigrants, rural communities, the people that are typically left out. It literally affects all of us. And so we have to intentionally build systems that support those folks. And now some people will say, okay, great, that sounds good. But you know what? I don't, you know, do women really have good ideas? They probably won't say it that way, but there'll be a thought, right? And what I love about your show is if you look, if you look at even just who you speak to, I mean, you know, this just from all the people you speak to, like, I said earlier, geography doesn't have a monopoly of good ideas. Also, with all respect, white men also don't have a monopoly on good ideas. Like innovation and entrepreneurship and creativity is evenly distributed. Opportunity is not. Mm-hmm. So we've got to create mm-hmm. the environments. And it isn't just about like wave your magic wand and make Des Moines more creative. It's about how do you as a person intentionally cultivate in your company in your organization, in your neighborhood, in your network, in your kids' school, equal opportunity, removing barriers for people with ideas so that they can make them happen and can have access to all the stuff we've been talking to very yeah. excitedly over the last hour. Yeah, no, thanks. Because I'm, I'm a firm believer that the more that we create environments that people can safely bring their authentic self to bear, I think we're better. Right. And, and, and that's one of the things that, uh, and, and I don't want to sound like a, you know, I'm mansplaining here, right. I'm, I'm as, as a middle-aged white guy, but uh, one, we don't need more middle-aged white guy perspectives in the world, right. We've, 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 we've had enough for a while. Uh, But when everybody is trying to mimic the business person that came the generation before them, we're not going to solve the problems, but when we, when we create a safe space where we can authentically bring and celebrate folks from wherever they're coming from. That's where, that's my belief on where like team trust, team safety, psychological safety, the things that are actually at the core of the breakthroughs for innovation happen. Um, And that's why, yeah. So I I won't go too, too far down that path, but that's where sometimes I get, I get frustrated also with my broad stroke stereotype of Silicon Valley is like, we don't need to solve more problems on what's what's the best tasting wine or am I going to get uh, an Uber or Lyft ride today, right? I mean, as a designer, we're supposed to get excited about complex, wicked problems. And there's plenty of those around. <laughs> and but 2020 has shown us there's so right. many of those to be solved that perhaps we were just not thinking or aware of their existence. Right. But yeah, I'm... <laughs> 
just from a team dynamic, the more that you can help people be themselves, I think that, and, and, and that's just my, I don't know from your perspective, but for me, from a team perspective, that that's part of, I feel, especially as I get older, almost my responsibility for setting the stage for design and innovation is actually one being clear on the objectives, being vulnerable. If I didn't explain it correctly, right? Like I might not know, uh, but then what is the way that I can create the safest environment for people to do their best work? You know, and I, going back to the definition of that we used earlier of creativity as a synthesis of diverse elements, we got to increase the diverse elements. That literally means the people in the room, right? Perspectives and people coming from, as we talked about travel, different cultures, different mindsets are going to bring different ways. Maybe ultimately results in more creativity, more innovation, more entrepreneurship. And all this, you know, there's a, so many studies. I mean, just Google innovation diversity and you will, you know, the, the you know, teams with more uh, women uh, on them get more innovative solutions. Businesses with more women on their border and their senior leadership are more successful. Yep. Uh, uh, companies with uh, cultural diversity come up with more innovative ideas and ultimately make more money. So uh, there was a recent, I think it was a McKinsey uh, research that looked at that. And so there is, there is a social imperative to diversity, equity, and inclusion. It is the right thing to do. The country that aspires to be yep. a place, all men and women are critical. But there is also an economic imperative, which is the economy will be more innovative, more creative, more entrepreneurial. That there is a lot more money to be made from diverse teams. If you want to think in yep. that, so that's. I, I think that economic imperative gets missed sometimes because everyone thinks, well, kumbaya, don't we all have to get along? Which is hundred percent correct. But there's an economic imperative, especially as the demographics. Yeah, yeah, right, right. And, and that's one of the things I think I struggle with is these aren't mutually exclusive. No. Right. And yeah, to your point, uh, it, what's coming to mind, I wish I could offhand remember the authors, but in the past couple of years, Harvard Business Review, two different articles related to uh, innovation and problem solving. One was the more diverse your organization, the more innovative you are. And and they just show a direct correlation to that. And then the other was, uh, and, and speaks to kind of the strategic doing uh, perspective, but uh, cognitive diversity is that problem solving teams, the more cognitively diverse the team, they, t they solve problems faster. And so like, if I could just talk to more CEOs, you want more innovation, you want more revenue, and you want to solve problems faster, diversify. That's right. And I, and I think the... I think the some of the writing that that uh, Scott and uh, Ed at the strategic with the strategic doing group, the Agile Strategy Lab, talk about. Yeah. I love how they say that you know you need that culture or the psychological what is it psychological, psychological safety, psychological safety, and then cognitive diversity. Yeah, safe working together, and we have to have different points of view. And it's it boils down because no because the world is more complex. Well, let's remember we're driving in the connected age, technology connectivity are literally accelerating in the speed, the complexity to create complexity. No one individual, I don't care if you're Jamie Diamond or Barack Obama or Oprah Winfrey, you cannot literally process all the information. So we have to work together to figure out the solutions. One person, one individual, even one organization, COVID is such a good example, cannot be solved by even a federal government. We have to work together. We need that, that diversity in the team to be able, as problems get more and more complex, and then the one thing I would also emphasize, which, you know, we've been taking a pretty U.S. centric conversation, frame this conversation. Yep. Yep. 
is like, we got to think globally about diversity, right? So like the lack of toilet paper at the beginning of the pandemic is not a US problem. It's a global supply chain problem, which has something to do with the trees that are being cut down through the factories that make it, that ship it on, tr- you know, mm-hmm. trucks to do, like we're all responsible for that supply chain. And if the if anything, this is from my trip around the world, you know, we're all much more similar than we're led to believe. We're all much more connected than we're led to believe. And sometimes we forget that until we run out of toilet paper and we recognize that we need to learn how to work not just across different cultures and parts of our society in the US, but really the globe, because all problems are global right now because right. of the particularly the consumer culture is. It's so interconnected. And I, I just find it fascinating when it's like, oh, we're out of, you know, fill in the blank. Like, like my brother works in supply chain work uh, uh, with uh, an appliance with a furniture appliance place. And he's like telling me like, it's, it's gonna, it's like, if you, want to, if you want to refrigerate now, it's six months, but the problem isn't the company's ability to deliver it. It goes all the way back to like iron ore mining in Australia and whatever smelting that happens in Malaysia. And you're like, we're all so connected in the connected age. Right. That's probably more complex. We need more diverse teams. It is harder to lead a diverse team. That's one skill that we'll need in the connected age. But ultimately that diversity will result in better solutions, more creativity and better design. And one of the last things I usually check in with guests is related to advice. And I know you were talking about kind of with 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 John and Samantha and, and defining creativity uh, and a couple different ways that, that this part of the conversation can go is uh, what's good advice you've received in your life that continues to provide value to you or clarity or uh, kind of stealing from Austin Cleon's steal like an artist. When he says, when we give advice, we're talking to our younger self. Uh, what's advice that you, you, you wish you might've had earlier in your career? So if you want to handle either or both, I'd appreciate kind of the notion of advice for creatives listening today. Sure. So um, I don't know if this is originally my advice, similar to the Steal Like an Artist. I can't remember. Uh, but maybe my, I think the phrasing of it is at least mine. Um, so this is, I'll, I'll give you advice I would give and then advice I was given that to this day is incredibly important. So the advice I would give is this is is a phrase I use a lot. I speak a lot with college students. I love I love teaching and working with college students. I've taught a number of courses and I travel to universities and speak. But the advice I give college students because they're dealing with this question: What do I want to do when I grow up? And you know, even people who are grown up deal with that question. My advice is: Follow your fascinations, and interesting things will happen. And I think in a lot of podcasts like this, <laughs> where people listen to advice from people like you and I, uh, or, or insight, uh, people say uh, this very cliched thing, which is follow your passions and your dreams will come true. That is not untrue, but it's, ter- it's terribly unhelpful advice for someone who doesn't know their passion. Right. Frankly, most of us can't really pin it to the wall. Like if you said, what is your passion? I mean, I can, I can tell you some things uh, that are my passions, but when I was younger, for sure, I was like, I, I don't know, I like all the things. <laughs> I like dentistry and filmmaking to your point, right? Like I, uh, it's one of those, right? But this notion of fascinations, I think, is a better piece of advice. So in lieu of follow your, follow, follow, uh, follow your passions and your dreams will come true. If you know what your passions are, first of all, you have a gift most people don't have. And if you know now what you want to do for the rest of your life, just go do that and shut off the podcast and go, go be passionate. 
But if you're still like, ah, I don't know, I, ugh, okay. I don't know what my passions are. I, I love this notion of fascinations. So what's a fascination? A fascination is a thing you do when you're supposed to be doing work. Um, and a couple tests. So like, what is the thing that you, or at least another test. What are the, what's the thing you do uh, where time disappears? Like when you do it, it's two hours later, it's flow, yep. right? Those are two good indicators. Um, I used to tell this to college students and the college students would be like, well, I like to play video games and time flies by. I can't, <laughs> like, well, now kids. <laughs> um, but I think that it, the idea is that if you can identify a fascination, what's the thing you love, you know, you find interesting playing with that idea. It, like play is such a key word. I'm sure comes up on this podcast over and over again, play with it, you know, like, like just, you know, goof around with it. You know, are you going to make a million dollars? Is this the next greatest startup? Is it, you know, are you going to become a YouTube influencer with it? Probably not on the first step, but just doing it. And because we talked about the barrier to entry to, to creativity and innovation and entrepreneurship decline, you can literally put something out in the world with like no cost, right? And as you play with it, as you mess with it, you will become either more clear on what part of it you like, you probably will get better at it. Uh, or you will say, you know what, it turns out that's not actually the fascination I'm going to move on next. So, so follow your fascinations and interesting things will happen. And for me, the story goes back to the James gang. I got introduced to this idea of creative communities and I've literally been playing with it for 20 years. Turned into a career. The stuff I do now seems like people are like, oh, how did you know in 2003 that entrepreneurial ecosystem building might be the future of economic development? I was like, I didn't. It was just interesting. Yeah. Like it was the problem I wanted to solve. It was a thing that was interesting. So all your fascinations uh, and uh, interesting things will happen. Notice I didn't say your dreams will come true. I just said interesting things will happen. So that's sort of my advice on, on I would give, again, probably not my, at least the, the phrasing of it, maybe my original advice. One of the best pieces of advice that I think is really relevant, and I said it earlier, but I just want to reemphasize it which is the importance of being able to hold creative tension. And in the moment of trying to get a diverse team together, in a moment of trying to solve a difficult problem, when you're uncomfortable, you typically just wanna solve it and get out of it, right? And in a group, typically a disagreement about the direction our team should take. There is a tendency to want to get out of that by being, okay, we're doing A or we're doing B or, Let's take a vote and we're moving on, right? But what I have found both in my life and my work in communities, um, but also, and even you look at the research, it is in that creative tension that interesting things happen, but you have to be cool with holding it. You have to be comfortable being uncomfortable. And I, I don't wanna land this by saying one last thing. I'm reading, I'm rereading for about the fourth time this great book. Uh, it's called Healing the Heart of Democracy by Parker Palmer. And it literally is talking about the moment we're in, even though he wrote it, I think 15 years ago, about this, we're so divided as a nation in the United States. But he talks about in the book, the importance of holding the creative tension, that there are segments of the population that vehemently disagree and have different worldviews. But it isn't about squishing one or the other, it's about creating space to hold the creative tension and then building the culture of and the conversation in that tension to be able to resolve it and to find that new way, right? And it isn't gonna be the Democrats win, the Republicans win. It is going to be some third way ultimately that will get us out of it. And it is that creative tension that is the fire that creates new ways. And so back to the notion of sort of craft creativity and collaboration if to tie it all back together, that all happens in moments of creative tension.
best piece of advice from a mentor of mine, I'll shout him out, Chuck Peters, who specifically reminded me every time we've got to sit in the creative tension. Thank you so much, Andy. It was an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast. I really appreciate you taking the time and, and sharing your insights with, with me and the audience. Thank you. It's been, it's, it's very, you know, humbling to be even be invited to be included on a list of folks uh, that you interviewed. And uh, hopefully uh, something I've said has at least been mildly entertaining at a minimum. Uh, and then maybe something stuck and, and people will be able to take back and apply in their own, their own stories and their own Absolutely. Thanks so much and take care. Take care.